Good morning, church. Man, this morning I am very grateful for a few things. Worshiping together is one of them because I know that's not the case throughout all of the country. And so, as Mike said, we're going to do our best to be as careful as possible while also being able to hear one another sing, being able to applaud, being able to say amen, and maybe even say, Pastor, that ain't right. Don't say that uh, until an email later. Uh, so, I want to begin as we begin the book of Acts with a prayer. Father, I come to you this morning knowing that I am distracted, that there are other things on my mind, there are other things biting for my attention, and I'm sure I'm not the only one today. I pray for those brothers and sisters and friends of ours in this community that are currently dealing with COVID, God. I pray, Lord, that you would heal them quickly and that they would be safe and you would make them healthy. God, I pray that we, as we spend time in your word, either in person or online, would be encouraged by the reality that even though this was written 2,000 years ago, man, it, it is, it's reading our email right now. So would you speak to us through your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever dreamed about doing something other than what you're currently doing? You can raise your hand. Okay. A few of you and the rest of you are worried your boss is going to see you on the live stream. Maybe you're in between professions, and that question in particular becomes a really more current question that you're wrestling with. When I was younger, I wanted to be in the FBI. I also wanted to be a stuntman, a professional basketball player, a professional wrestler, uh -huh, a writer, a rock star, and a ninja, just to name a few. In my 23 years of adult life, that means I've been 23, 8, never mind, I've been a student athlete, a retail manager, a furniture mover, an auto parts salesman, an insurance agent, a small business owner, an amateur cyclist, a nonprofit leader, a speaker, and a pastor at a few different churches. And I have daydreamed about what I would do otherwise if God had not called me into the ministry to help shepherd the sheep and the flock of Jesus. The latest fantasy that I've had of moonlighting would be that I'd get to be a tow truck driver. <laughs> I really like diesels, and I wish that I was a little bit more useful with my hands, so there you go. But one job that I really contemplated years back, I really thought about doing before we had a gaggle of kids and a mortgage, was that I wanted to be a bike messenger. That's someone who, especially in big cities like New York or San Francisco, Vancouver, Canada, and Chicago, where you would take paperwork or something else that's required with an authentic signature, and you would deliver that paperwork, get it signed, and you'd probably have the ability to be a notary as well. I like the idea of that job because I used to love riding my bike. I loved riding through traffic, and I loved getting places faster on two wheels than you could get on four. The money wasn't enough to even do it on the side, and yes, it probably was kind of dangerous, which added to the allure. Being a messenger meant that you had information, a message, a special statement or explanation of something that needed to be delivered, and today we begin the book of Acts which is the actions of the apostles by the Holy Spirit, and it's 28 chapters of how the Spirit of God used these messengers to bring the gospel of Jesus across the globe while building the church of God. This letter was written as a sequel to the letter known as Luke. In Luke, the doctor and historian Luke wrote about all that he researched regarding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And today we begin the sequel the continuation, 
the next chapter in God's work through the apostles who had been given authority from the Son to complete His unfinished work of bringing the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts is titled that because it was originally known as the Actions of the Apostles. But as our series title suggests, it's really the Holy Spirit who is the catalyst and the igniter of the apostles. And their walking in step with His will is what is documented and shown so that we can have a more defined picture of Christ's bride known as the church. The church is not a building or an organization biblically. It's an organism full of people who become His church. It is not the steeple. It is the people. That is what the church is. That God in His grace and His mercy would draw people to Himself and they would become collectively the church of the living God. And what we will read over the next many months as we study the book of Acts is that the birth of the church, of these people together, that if you identify with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master, you too are included as the church together. So whatever pre-existing assumptions you have regarding what the church of the living God looks like, or began as, or how it began, I'd like you to look at what God says about it and how it originated. So let's start in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Luke writes this letter again to this guy named Theophilus, and from now on I'm going to call him Theo for short. Commentators believe that Theo was a Roman official and that Luke had an ongoing relationship with him. It can be assumed that Luke was either trying to evangelize Theo or disciple him with two letters that bring into view who Jesus is, what he taught, what he did, and now the result of Jesus' ministry being carried out by his disciples who were appointed as apostles. So in verse 1 and 2, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, verse 2, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Luke continues with, until the day he was taken up to heaven. This is what we know as the ascension. The ascension where Jesus lives, dies, and rises from the dead, shows himself to hundreds of people, and after what we will just read in a moment, he ascends to heaven, back to the right hand of the Father. But also, this is the last time that Jesus is physically seen, according to the Scriptures, until the day He comes back. After giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen, the apostles, as we study in more detail next week, are known as the sent ones. They are chosen by Jesus and sent by Him, equipped with the Spirit of God to lead them. Verse 3, After his, Jesus's, suffering, he presented himself to them, the apostles, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over 40 days, a period of 40 days, and spoke about the kingdom of God. One thing that is a prerequisite of an apostle is that they saw Jesus alive after he died. This being a witness was one that was of first importance, a firsthand account of actually seeing Jesus alive after his death, because their eyewitness account of the resurrected Jesus is a testimony that is much stronger than anyone's second or third hand account. He presented himself and gave many convincing proofs, which we studied many of them in the final weeks of the book of John, but Paul the Apostle says it very well in his first letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 15, starting around verse 4. He says that Jesus was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, meaning died. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, and then to all the apostles, and then he goes on in verse 8 to say, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. That's what Paul said. Over 40 days, Jesus was on his farewell tour, not because he was dying or because he was going to move to some other part of the country, but because he was ascending to heaven and showing himself to many who knew or saw the crucifixion and understood that it was of first importance because without eyewitness reports of Jesus' resurrection, the idea that he rose seemed impossible. Verse 4, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Luke tells Theophilus and reminds us as readers that Jesus told the disciples who would become apostles to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says in Luke 24, verse 49. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And then in verse 5 of Acts 1, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As John the Baptist is quoted as saying in Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, and this was his message. After he comes, the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am un- are not worthy to stoop down and untie, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. People have different definitions and even emphasis on baptism of the Holy Spirit. Has anyone ever heard this term before, baptized in the Holy Spirit? Talk back to me if you have. Okay, a decent amount of you. Okay. Now, the idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, what I believe Luke and John the Baptist were pointing out, what they were implying when John said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, is not some special distinction for a variety of Christians, but that Jesus comes with the power from on high And from Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit is now accessible for those who trust Jesus to indwell them, and we are immersed with Him. Now, immersed is a Greek word which is baptizo, which means baptize. I could go into a long rant about baptism and the Holy Spirit and how some people have decided to try to make it out to something that it is not biblically, but what it means from the source is that the Spirit who resides in those who by faith in Christ have repented of their sins now have the advocate inside of them to lead and guide them. They have been immersed. They have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is a pretty telling question. We've talked about this question before in service. While these disciples who had become apostles had walked with and learned from and done life on life with Jesus for at least three years, they they were still focused on the physical rather than the spiritual. Jesus, here's what they are implying, are you now going to overthrow the government is another way of looking at the question. 
Their governmental kingdom had blinded them to the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Their governmental kingdom, their political affiliation had blinded them to the kingdom of God. I am so glad this doesn't happen anymore. Could you imagine if people put politician words, politicians' words above God's word? Could you imagine what the world would look like? <sighs> that would just be insane. The book of Acts, while really the second part of Luke's two-part writings to this guy named Theo, was written to answer some questions that had yet to been approached in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here are some, here are some questions that the book of Acts eventually answers. How could Jesus be the Messiah if he died as a common criminal? Why did the kingdom of God arrive on earth in an unexpected way? How can the church be the people of God if most Jews, known as God's chosen people, reject Jesus and his church, yet the church is growing rapidly with Gentile, non-Jews, as believers? Is the Apostle Paul a Jewish renegade Jew that rejects his Jewish heritage by welcoming unclean Gentiles into the people of God without circumcision or the keeping of the law? Why is Paul an apostle? He isn't even mentioned in the four Gospels. The book of Acts does a really great job of answering all of these and many, many more so these questions so we as believers and followers of Jesus can see what the original believers and followers of Jesus did through the work of the same Holy Spirit that was promised when we received Jesus and His work on the cross and through the empty tomb. The book of Acts also confirms the gospel message and the gospel messengers. It establishes the con uh, continuation between God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament and their fulfillment in Christ and the church. Acts shows that what was prophesied in the Old Testament regarding God's plan for salvation was fulfilled in the life, the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. The church is made up of both the righteous remnant of Israel and the Gentiles, who together make up the people of God, the church. And Acts is written with the same purpose as the book of Luke, where Luke writes this at the beginning of his letter to Theophilus and Luke. I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of things you have been taught, that we may be equipped not just with what happened, but the evidence and trust in what has happened. To show that Christianity is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament foreshadowed, where Jesus, who is, uh, is the point who the Hebrew Scriptures taught about as the coming Messiah, that this is what the Jews believed, they just didn't realize that this is who God was talking about in their Scriptures. So asking a question with possible political implications, these disciples who would become apostles ask Jesus, and Jesus responds in a way that he tends to not answer this directly in the four Gospels. Here's what he says in verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Translation, it's none of your business. God is the one who is in control of the space-time continuum, the gravitational pull of the sun, and the power of His will. 
And for us to know everything, for the disciples to understand everything, both would probably be detrimental to our, ability, our obedience and to our ability to trust God. So out of this question, will you restore Israel, or will you restore the kingdom back to Israel? Will Israel reign above and defeat the Roman Empire? Jesus says, it's none of your business, but you will, let's go, but you will receive power. Say power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is a verse that most of us are pretty familiar with. Jesus motivates his disciples who would become apostles with the promise of the Holy Spirit who would come and bring power to them to be witnesses. And what does a witness do? Testify. To the ends of the earth, beginning in their sphere of influence and then beyond. This is a popular verse that oftentimes has been stripped of its context. The disciples are a bit bewildered, aren't they? They have seen their teacher die on a cross, rise from the dead. He has physically been around them. He has eaten with them. He has given them so much evidence that his resurrection from the dead was supernatural. It was spoken about beforehand, and it actually happened in real time. And the disciples who would become apostles have had a lot happen to them and their worldview over the past 40 days, really the past three years. Now, here's Jesus with them resurrected, alive, and in the flesh, shutting down their political and physical questions with a promise that their spiritual lives are about to experience a huge upgrade, and the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling them and providing power to do the Lord's will. Church, a big reason for walking through the book of Acts, the actions of the apostles, was so that we as a church could see from the Word of God the game changer, which is the Holy Spirit in God's people. What I have personally experienced in ministry over the past two decades of doing ministry is that we miss the forest for the trees a lot. And as we study the book of Acts and are pointed to the obedience to the Word of God, We are pointed to actions confirming belief as we see the apostles trusting the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who arrived in a pretty loud way at Pentecost. We'll study that in just a few weeks. As we see the apostles doing the unfinished work of Christ, as we see Paul begin his ministry after seeing transformation through meeting the resurrected Jesus. I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that the book of Acts in and of itself is not the point. Jesus is the point. And the apostles carry out what he commissioned them to do, to be witnesses of what they had seen, what they had experienced, to tell the ends of the earth about the glory of God found in the gospel message of Jesus. So I want to point out something that I know I have before, but sharing your faith is part of the Christian lifestyle. It is not what earns you Christ. And I think sometimes you might hear from the front, hey, we need to go share, we need to give, we need to do this, that, or the other thing. And all of a sudden, without meaning to, we start to go, well, me and God are good. Why? Because I did what the pastor said from the music stand. And justifying ourselves by, the external, by any external work 
which is something that before the New Testament was even written had been the eternal problem for all people. To ever try to justify yourself by something you do misses sight of the gospel completely. If I could help us as a community understand one thing, it's that nothing we can do, nothing we can attain, nothing we can choose on our own could ever justify us. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that any of us are made right, any of us are given salvation, any of us are justified, any of us are found not guilty, any of us are Christians. Faith alone, in Christ alone, that's it, because of grace alone. Nothing can earn you salvation, but Christ gives it to us as a gift. And the more I lean into this faith, the more that I learn about Jesus as I really get paid to study the Bible, which is kind of a sweet gig. It's better than being a bicycle messenger or a ninja. The more I read and obey the Word of God, the more I understand and am blown away and grateful for the fact that justification is God's. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That my righteousness, my right standing, my not guilty verdict before the perfect judge and jury is because of Jesus alone. And when you embrace that, your identity does not need to be found in external, temporal, or material things. I'm a witness for the king. Not just because he lived, died, and rose from the dead, and I read about it. I'm a witness for the king because he made me a new creation, and he has superimposed his goodness and righteousness upon me. And the more I am taught, the more I am reminded, the more I am assessed, the more that I realize that I am a witness for the king who did for me what I couldn't do for myself. So, church, let me ask you what the Lord is asking all of those who claim to follow him. Can I get a witness? That's what he's looking for. And he's asking those of his who have been drawn to him, are you my witness? Can you testify to what I have done in your life? How was your Sunday? Oh, it was good. What did you do? I saw the Broncos lose. No, that was Saturday. Never mind. No, you can talk about the fact that you were a part of church, that you got to see a friend who has had something happen in their life, and you got to pray for them. Man, I'm I'm not dissing or affirming Spencer's singing voice, but getting to stand next to Spencer and sing praises to Jesus's name, nothing's better than that. You know why? Because we're doing this together, and we want to be able to do this together, and we want to get to worship Jesus together, And we get to be witnesses and see God draw more and more people to himself, but he's going to use us. I wouldn't use us. We're not polished. But he chooses to use us to confound the wise. So these disciples who would be witnesses, we as disciples of Jesus today are his witnesses. We may have seen different things, but we have the same power of the Holy Spirit who indwells and leads those who have been drawn by God and have received Jesus as their justification. A pastor and speaker named Francis Chan, some of you have probably heard of him, asked of a contemporary believer, he asked this question, if the Holy Spirit left you, would you even notice? which is a pretty thought-provoking question, but I'd like to ask it this way. Do you really believe the third person of the Trinity resides in you? If you've received Christ and His work as your salvation, 
The Bible says clearly that he does. In Ephesians chapter 1, 13 through 14, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, not when you did enough, not when you gave enough, not when you were baptized, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. If we really believe God and trust His Word, and we embrace what is alluded to or said throughout Scripture, that a submitted Christian is a Spirit-indwelled Christian, and with the indwelling of the third person of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we have access to the power of the Spirit of God not just so we can feel better about ourselves, not, because, not so anxiety will just go away, but so that we can proclaim the good news of the gospel. We might not know the right words. Do you know that, I mean, some of you have heard me tell stories of sharing my faith and it going pretty well and someone coming to faith and it was exciting. I screw up nine out of ten times. And I have the same spirit in me that's in you. So don't expect that every time you share Jesus, you're going to have the right words or you're going to know the correct answer. We might not know exactly where something is found in the Bible. Real quick, Google helps. Just saying. But God in the mystery of his gospel uses messed up people like Mike. (laughs) And you and me to fulfill His purposes. And what I've seen over and over is God working through people in His church using us to connect people to Him. This was the commission that Jesus gave His disciples who would become apostles. And as we have studied before, we might be disciples of Jesus, but you and I, we're not apostles. We have not seen Jesus alive after He died. I saw Him in my grilled cheese. No, you didn't. We have not been chosen by God to write Scripture, but we have the same Holy Spirit inside of us to guide and lead us to be used by Him. And let me just be really honest with us. Most of us, me included, take this for granted. We really do. And if you are ever struggling with your worth, if you're ever struggling with your usefulness, I can't imagine a more important realization then we are tools in the hands of the Lord to invite people into his family. In our last series in the book of John, Mike reminded us that we're sheep. I'm a sheep. All right, I got a new one in the book of Acts. I'm a tool. You're a tool. Yeah. And that is a wonderful thing. Verse 9. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is known as the ascension. Jesus ascends back to heaven in his physical form, and Luke notes that a cloud hid Jesus from the disciples' sight. Clouds are often mentioned in Scripture to point out God's glory. And these clouds that hid Jesus from the sight of the future apostles were to highlight and demonstrate that Jesus was ascending in glory. I could go down this entire track about perhaps how this means that we get to fly in heaven. We don't. But as we will see, the supernatural happening is another example of God with us in Jesus, breaking the rules of gravity. 
Verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, looking intently into the sky. I'd say so. For the first time ever, you've seen a man fly, and it's not just any man. It is the Lord who validated his lordship by rising from the dead. I'd be staring at the sky for a really, really, really long time, which is perhaps why God sent these messengers in the angels, or as Luke put it, men dressed in white stood beside them. Here's what they said, verse 11, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Uh, because that was awesome. Yet the angels made known that Jesus would return, and I'm sure the disciples assumed that it would be pretty soon. They just keep looking for the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years until they died. And yet, God sent these messengers. And for us, 2,000 years later, we're kind of in this weird place, aren't we? We don't look intently in the sky, but we don't act like He's coming back. He hasn't returned the same way that He left, which really, as the angel said, meant that He would physically and visibly come back through the clouds. But what is promised? What do we know from God's Word? It's that He will return. This is both descriptive in the way from the clouds, physically and visibly, and prescriptive in the sense that we as followers of Christ have a responsibility and urgency to be witnesses and testify to what He has done. We are not the planning committee, church. We are the welcoming committee. And one of the ways we can welcome Him when He comes back, if it's in our lifetime or not, is to not just look into the sky, but live as if He's coming back soon. Let me take you back to the verse that I'm sure most of us are familiar with out of this passage, but I left a little meat on the bone. Here's what it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. What's a witness do? in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Can you show that map of Jerusalem? And Okay, it's not a bad map. And you see Jerusalem circled at the bottom, and then it's Judea, and then it's Samaria. I want you guys to look at that as I talk about this. See, power will come from the Holy Spirit to empower the disciples who would become apostles, and really all of us that would receive Christ would then be indwelled with the Holy Spirit. The ability, when the Spirit comes, the ability we are now granted is to testify to what Christ has done. But look at where. It says in Jerusalem, the bottom, the bottom circle. This was hometown for the disciples, where everything that had happened, where the disciples were best known, this was where the connections were already established and their sphere of influence was most easily accessible. Then there's Judea, which is right above this. And, and Judea was like the county of Santa Clara, not the city of Santa Clara, but the county of Santa Clara. So if you live in South San Jose, you live in Santa Clara County. Not just the city, but the surrounding area of Judea, which is primarily for them, they didn't have cars, was primarily a day's walk. This required, those in Judea, required more of an effort from the disciples because it wasn't necessarily their neighborhood or their backyard. It required traveling. 
it required knowing other people in their own regions. For us parents, this could look like the other parents at our kids' school, or people that work in our profession, but not necessarily alongside us. For students, this could be the other students at our school that we don't share any classes with, but we see at lunch or in the halls or connected to us through another friend. These were people we would have to put in a little bit more intentionality with to connect with, but we could put in extra effort to build bridges. Samaria, which was above this, for the disciples was the other side of the tracks, if you will, the places that they don't naturally go to, to the people they don't naturally associate with. For a Christian, this might be someone of another faith or someone of no faith someone that we don't naturally agree with, but we can find common ground and befriend them. And to the ends of the earth, the disciples who would become apostles continued making other disciples of Jesus, and God built His church throughout Asia Minor, throughout this entire continent, and then upon the entire earth. And some places, there are more of a Christian influence than other places, but more than anything, we want people to be able to hear about the gospel, the life that is offered in Jesus. My hope was that walking around the neighborhood, for some of us, just a few days ago, or uh, last month, passing out invite cards to the church was stretching for some of you. It, was it, if you did it, was it stretching for you? It was a little nerve-wracking. You were like, I'm going to knock on the door, and they're going to be like, shh, they're not going to do that here. That's like Texas. <laughs> but I hope that you experience the beginning of what might become a habit, where you want to invite people, not just to your community, not just to your church, but to hear about Jesus, to hear about His gospel, to be invited to follow Him. That's why we invited people, because on Sundays and on Christmas Eve, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's easier to invite people to a community group or a church service if you know them and you see them very often, but what about those people that are more like acquaintances, that might require a little bit extra effort to engage with? Here's what I would encourage you to do. Don't just, you know, drive over to their house and knock on their door and be like, hey, I was told I have to come invite you to church. Don't do that. Start with praying for them. Be intentional. Ask them questions about themselves. And be prepared to answer questions about yourselves, which hopefully includes not only what you do on Sundays, but whose you are in Jesus. Maybe you have some people in your life that you don't agree with. And the next step isn't inviting them to church or sharing your faith because you don't have much of a connection. Hey, who'd you vote for? Jesus? Stop it. Stop it. Actually, some of you did that. That's hilarious. But begin praying for them. Make a committed effort to intercede for them before the Lord. It's hard to dislike someone that you're constantly praying for. You might at first, but over time, God starts to change your heart. And lastly, maybe the ends of the earth is something that is specifically on your heart those faceless people who you believe the Lord wants to use you to engage with. You can give towards the church because we are committed to using our funds to reach and equip those outside of this area. Specifically, Cambodia comes to mind as we help Sam and Smy in their ministry. Or maybe you talk with Pastor Chris about the upcoming mission trip that we have planned specifically to Ukraine. 
Church of the Valley has intentionally attempted to focus on our sphere of influence, our county, the less obvious places, and to the ends of the earth for as long as I have been here and probably before that. But I hope as we continue to study this letter, the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit does amazing things through the apostles for the glory of Jesus' name, we will get not only motivated to be even more equipped to be image bearers, to proclaim the gospel to those in our sphere of influence and beyond, but that we would be willing to trust God at His Word and realize the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you if you've trusted Christ. No matter what you do for a living currently, each and every single one of you have a second or maybe even a third job that is actually the most important eternally. We're all messengers carrying the greatest news that could ever be shared. God loves you, and He sent His Son to die in your place, and His Son rose from the dead, and if you believe and receive that, you are adopted into His family, you are made part of His people, you are part of His church, and you are given His Spirit as the deposit of the guarantee of your future inheritance. Worship team, would you come on up? Church, the book of Acts should be stretching. It should grow us, it should change us, it should challenge us. There's a lot in it. Some of it's prescriptive, some of it's descriptive, but all of it points to the reality that Jesus changes this world. And my hope is as we worship in song, as we have the opportunity to do takeaways, as we close the service in a few moments, that you would engage with your God, that you would start to read the book of Acts, understanding that God through His Spirit is at work in those who have trusted Jesus, and that includes you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have as your children, and maybe for some of us yet to receive you as Lord. We come today with the ability to hear your word, the ability to put into practice your word if we've trusted you and your spirit indwells us. We have the ability to tell others about how great you are, which will never justify us, but because of what you've already done, God, why would I not want others to know of the Savior? So God, wherever we stand this morning with you, if we're lost and we've been running, I pray that you draw us to yourself and we turn around and realize you'll meet us right there. If we have been following you faithfully, God, may you remove anything that we possibly try to justify ourselves with that isn't your work on the cross and resurrection from the dead. God, would you lead us in this time of worship because we want it to bring a smile to your face, whatever that is like, but we also want to leave this place with the ability to put into practice what you've taught us today. So God, would you lead us through your spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.